For the first half of the 20th century, the nation of Cuba was not considered particularly important on the world stage. It was written off as one of many Latin nations that lay in the clutches of American foreign power, listlessly pumping out sugar and bananas for the consumption of people who couldn't find the country on a map. By 1963, Cuba was at the center of the world, the nexus of a conflict between America and the USSR that threatened to cut the story of humanity short in nuclear hellfire. This Caribbean nation had not accidentally slipped into the world's spotlight. It got there through the urges of people and popular uprising, by blood and conflict as regimes were toppled and newcomers struggled to take hold of power, by the arrogance and folly of the highest reaches of the American state, and by the bold gamblings of leaders that raised the stakes higher and higher. The chips were stacked so high that many of us forget where the conflict started. They forget that the table for this dangerous game was set with the Cuban Revolution. Welcome, ladies, gentlemen, and gamers to the No One Is Competent podcast. This is your preeminent show about how why everyone who's ever made important decisions is bad at their jobs, or at least not better at their jobs than they are. We are recording this on Labor Day weekend. It's been a while since we've been able to record because we have been struck uh, by plagues and work and uh, the occasional mental health crisis because, you know, everything is fine. <laughs> um, so, of course, a Labor Day shout-outs to all of the garbage men and construction workers and road workers and nurses and doctors and social workers and restaurant workers and shelf stackers and cashiers and everyone who maintenance people mechanics that's the word mechanics plumbers electricians everyone who keeps our world running anyway i am azalea joined by my preeminent partner jaharis you can find us at azalea wyatt on twitter and at jaharis 48 on twitter you can email the podcast directly at no one is competent at gmail.com for podcast suggestions. Uh, we recently got a suggestion, and that is in the queue, I promise. And our music is done, of course, by the legendary Sam Bryce, as I do all of that without a script. Jay, Cuban Revolution. Yeah. It's 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 a it's a like on one hand, it's incredibly domestic from a history standpoint. You know, the plenty of dictators fell in the 20th century. Yes. It would take you several minutes to lift them all. And Batista was not like... He, he was not a super exceptional guy in terms of the length of his rule or his brutality or... Um, his skill, he was decently skilled, he was pretty brutal, and he ruled for not a short period of time, but it's not like headline grabbing. No, he's, you know, as we'll go into a little bit later, uh, he's definitely not a, like a Saddam Hussein or someone. He's very much a sort of, in some ways, a, a very average, um, maybe even some ways below average dictator. 
And the way he was overthrown was also relatively routine. You know, gorillas and the jungles and various infighting between factions that get together, some outside backing, bada-bing, bada-boom. And then, you know, few slip-ups of American State Department and intelligence and few miscalculations in the world stage, and, oh, we're going into the Cuban Missile Crisis. How did that happen? And while the uh, Cuban Revolution by no means made the Missile Crisis inevitable, um, you gotta know it. And I think it's an overlooked turning point in history. Especially because it then becomes overshadowed by all of the rest of the events. Yeah. Yeah, most people just know, you know, the Bay Pigs and wacky Castro assassination attempts and whatnot. And they don't really study exactly how, you know, Cuba, uh, an island that for decades and decades had been basically a protector of the United States, suddenly fell out of U.S. hands. Yeah, so as we've been talking about today, we're going to be covering the Cuban Revolution of 1953 to 1959, and our sources are Cuba and American History by Ada Ferrer, and the Cuban Revolution, Origins, Course, and Legacy by Marifali Perez-Stable. So we've talked about a few revolutions before on No One is Competent, and just as we did with Haiti and France, we'll begin this one by looking at a bit of the trends and events that laid the groundwork for it. The early history of Cuba is in many ways not dissimilar to that of the nearby island of Hispaniola, that being the place that contains Haiti and the Dominican Republic. Cuba is the largest island in the Caribbean, and it's located just 93 miles south of the Florida Keys. The terrain of Cuba is characterized by a mixture of flatland and rolling hills, with the more rugged Sierra Maestra mountains dominating the southeast tip of the island. Hispaniola, for reference, is just a little bit to the east, and Jamaica a bit to the south. Now, as was the case in both Hispaniola and much of the Caribbean, the pr principal inhabitants of Cuba prior to European contact were the Taino people. Columbus landed in Cuba during his first expedition to the Americas, and by the early 1500s, the Spanish were already beginning their transformation of the island. Early Spanish colonialism in Cuba led to the near-complete destruction of the indigenous culture, with the majority of the native population being completely wiped out by the 1550s. Now, as one could probably guess, the Spanish compensated for the lack of a native workforce by bringing in large quantities of African slaves. This is pretty much the standard pattern for colonialism at this time. Sugar, tobacco, and later coffee were the main crops grown on the island. That being said, during the early period of Spanish colonialism, the main value of the island lay in its strategic position, with the ports of Havana and Santiago serving as stopping points for fleets sailing to and from Mexico and Central America. As such, Cuba was not exploited to quite the same extent as Saint-Domingue was during the 18th century. Yeah, everything was sunshine and rainbows. By the start of the 19th century, however, things had begun to change on the island. Changes in Spanish economic policy and an influx of French immigrants following the demise of French control over Saint-Domingue, which you can, of course, hear about in our episodes on the Haitian Revolution, 
sparked a new boom in sugar production in Cuba, quickly transforming the island's agricultural sector into a nearly complete monoculture. This dependence on sugar would remain a reality of Cuban existence all the way into the late 20th century. I'll take an aside to mention that if you haven't listened to our Haitian Revolution episode, sugar plantations are some of the nastiest places in history that you can be that don't involve war, genocide, and plague. It is backbreaking work, and when you, especially when you both plant and harvest uh, the cane, people stay up for four days straight because if you take too long, the cane spoils. You have to gather it up. You have to press it in these giant grinding machines. You have to boil the sap that comes out. Um, there's lots of people accidentally getting their arms ripped off in these machines. Uh, boiling sap. If you've ever dealt with boiling or burning sugar, like if you've ever made praline, it gets on your skin and it's really hard to get off. Yeah. And all of this, whether it's being done by slaves or people who are technically free, is not going to be a fun time uh, in history. And, you know, agriculture is pretty hard. But of all the agriculture, sugar is particularly nasty. And, of course... If, uh, you know, one of the problems of monoculture that comes to mind is um, that shit burns really, really easily. <laughs> oh, yeah, for sure. Now, the first serious attempt at establishing an independent or at least partially autonomous Cuban state began in the early 1800s. As a result of both the spread of liberal ideology, the woke culture infecting our minds, following the American and French revolutions, and the political upheaval in Spain caused by Napoleon's invasion of the Iberian Peninsula, which you can hear about in the last episode we dropped. As Spain's American empire began to slip away from her during the early 1800s, it initially seemed as if Cuba would join the likes of Argentina, Colombia, and Peru in achieving its independence, with numerous plots and revolts taking place throughout the 1810s and 20s. However, by the end of the 1830s, the Spanish government had clamped down hard on the Cuban independence movement. Spanish rule was further strengthened by how the island served as a destination for loyalist immigrants from the newly independent South American countries. Spain remained committed to holding Cuba and its valuable sugar industry, suppressing the multiple uprisings throughout the 19th century. So, as most of South America besides Brazil and you know Mexico and Central America, all of these places are, it's like dominoes. The Spanish are just losing colony after colony after colony in the early 1800s. But Cuba, they can hold. It's closer to Spain. They, they kind of start sending more and more people there, which intentionally or non-intentionally reinforces it. And it is a huge cash cow because of its sugar, which, remember from the Haiti episode, is one of the hottest commodities in the world right now. Yeah, yeah. they end up even really seeing Cuba as, like, kind of prestigious because, you know, it, it's, it's one of the last strongholds of the Spanish. I mean, it is in the Americas, the last Spanish possession alongside Puerto Rico. So they've lost pretty much everything else, but they really want to hold on to Cuba. And that's why they will fight pretty hard to do that um, throughout the 1900s. Sorry, the 1800s. Now, apart from various struggles for independence from Spain, 19th century Cuban history would be driven in large part by an additional fear. 
an ever-increasing interest in the island on the part of the fledgling United States of America. In 1819, the Adams-Onis Treaty was signed between Spain and the United States. As a part of the Spanish territory of Florida was formally ceded to the United States, given its proximity to Florida, Cuba would be seen as the next logical acquisition for many Americans. This view was summarized by then-Secretary of State John Quincy Adams in 1923. But there are laws of political as well as physical gravitation, and if an apple is severed by the tempest from its native tree cannot choose but fall to the ground, Cuba, forcefully disjoined from its own unnatural connection with Spain and incapable of self-support, can gravitate only towards the North American Union, which by the same law of nature cannot cast her off from its bosom. I assume that's how uh, John Quincy that's Adams your, talked. He's that's your 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 John Quincy Adams impression. I mean, one, he's a dweeb, and two, uh, prove me wrong. <laughs> Fair. Now, former President Thomas Jefferson stated his views on Cuba in a letter to then President James Monroe, also in 1823, writing, "I candidly confess." that I have ever looked on Cuba as the most interesting addition which could ever be made to our system of states. The control which, with Florida Point, this island would give us over the Gulf of Mexico and the countries and isthmus bordering on it, as well as all those waters flow into it, would fill up the measure of our political well-being. Yet, as I am sensible that this can never be obtained, even with their own consent, but by war, and its independence, which is our second interest, and especially its independence of England, can be secured without it. Now, Jefferson's statement reflects a mindset that will become increasingly prevalent in American strategic thinking. As long as Cuba was in the hands of a declining Spain, the colony was of little threat to the United States. If Cuba were to fall to one of the more powerful European empires, namely Britain, though also France and Germany as well later on, then it could be used to threaten America's sphere of influence thereby either annexing Cuba or establishing it as an independent country allied with the United States was a paramount concern. Now, the prospect of directly annexing Cuba would also become particularly popular in the antebellum South, since incorporating such a large slaveholding territory into the U.S. would have bolstered the power of the slaveholding states in Congress. President Polk went so far as to attempt to purchase Cuba from Spain, only to have his offers rebuked by the Spanish. Yeah, Cuba is, um, for context, one of the last places in the Americas to get rid of slavery. Um, slavery would persist there until after the, the end of the American Civil War. This has been memory hold and is not really talked about in uh, American school. But, like, you know, from our perspective, the South is defeated and quasi-conquered in the Civil War and slavery, and the product of slavery is ended but if you are in the 1850s, slavery seems uh, transcendent and in, almost inevitable in many ways. Um, it is actively expanding. The U.S. goes to war with Mexico and takes giant swaths of land. The states are now, you know, Texas, Arizona, um, New Mexico, much of California. The idea that... the that process was simply going to continue was somewhat logical and um there's this uh 
I, I hope we can do an episode of it at some point. It might, they're not, might be a little thin, but th there's like a lot of, um, small, m much like, um, Texas, the annexation of Texas started with Americans moving into the land and trying to kind of take it over from the pre-existing locals and Spanish authorities, uh, independent of the U.S. There was this idea called filibustering in, uh, the pre-Civil War and sometimes a little bit of the post-Civil War imagination that like you know, a bunch of tough white people with guns could just go off in the jungle and <laughs> conquer land yeah. and, and, and now it's ours. Yeah, there, there are a couple of, of, of filibuster attempts to just conquer Cuba during the century. And these generally met with uh, quite comical ends. Yes, they, they all fail. But... Uh, yeah, the idea that we're going to go over there and get Cuba one of these days, that is something that is floating around America from more or less the start of the country all the way up to World War One. really. Um, we'll go into the Spanish-American War soon, but like, yeah, just... And of course, this is all in complete disregard to people who live there, but there are, and as we'll see, Many, like, alternate histories where Cuba is, if not a state, then a, um, a, a territory of the United States. There's, it, it's really not more far-fetched that the U.S. would have Cuba instead of or alongside Puerto Rico. But just, you know, a few decisions were made at certain points just because it, it didn't break that way, which we're going to get into. So despite, again, all the best efforts of these people, Cuba remained firmly in Spanish hands until the 1890s. The Cuban economy, however, drifted ever closer to that of America's, as that country became the prime destination for Cuban exports, as it is, again, 93 miles away. And as American businessmen bought up much of the Cuban countryside, which is happening all across the Caribbean and uh, Central America at this point, in 1895, the Cuban War of Independence, which was really just the latest in a series of independence struggles, began. The American public strongly sympathized with the Cuban rebels, providing them with arms and support. And in 1898, the U.S. joined the war against Spain following the destruction of the USS Maine in Havana Harbor, which has really funny conspiracy theories about it, but I'm not going to go into that. The end result of this war was the acquisition of the Philippines and Puerto Rico by the U.S. and the creation of an independent Cuba. Just, just as a note, um, many people uh, tie the beginnings of concentration camps as a technique to the Cuban uh, War of Independence being used by the Spanish. There are examples of stra similar strategies being done before this, um, but this along with the Boer War is one of the times where on an international stage people would find out about this technique and where it would kind of very quickly become disseminated across the world as a thing you could yeah. do in a military conflict. Though, again, it yeah. many people will say it happened before, but this was like, a lot of people will say it started here. I've seen some evidence start before, but I mean, the Cuban uh, concentration camps were incredibly brutal. And, um, yes. The said brutality was heavily emphasized by American journalism at the time. But kind of like how 
Oh, Jay, you remember, like, as soon as the pullout of Afghanistan started two years ago, it was like, but what about women's rights? But what about all of the, yeah. <laughs> the, 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 the rare earth minerals that are there? And it's like, you know, we're writing all these articles about all of these atrocities, but the underlying reason we were there in the first place, or we would be there, is for, you know, conquest, colonialism, capitalism, extraction, all of that. But yeah. you gotta put a good spin on it. Yeah. And, and on as to your earlier point about like alternate histories, um, the reason why the U.S., one of the reasons why the U.S. just straight up gets Philippines, obviously that would later change, and Puerto Rico, but they don't annex Cuba is because a Colorado senator, um, Teller, literally adds an amendment to the war resolution saying that the U.S. cannot annex Cuba. Yes, it was changed at the last minute. And there was, like, a, a massive outcry in both chambers of Congress and, like, across the country. Because, like, a lot of people were like, why did we even do the war if we're not going to get Cuba? Um, and we, we could do a whole thing on that, and, but it mostly comes down to, like, American politics of the 1890s and various fat cats uh, who have bought off politicians uh, positioning themselves. Um, yeah. I mean, I've heard some of it as being like Colorado in particular had a big sugar beet industry and they want to compete with, with Cuban sugarcane. And, you know, there, there's all sorts of stuff going on. Yes, but it was very close, very close to um, acquisition. But, hey, War of Independence happens. The Spanish-American War happens. Cuba has finally won its independence on paper. In reality, the new Cuba was firmly within the American sphere of influence. In the immediate aftermath of the war, Cuba was occupied by American soldiers, uh, including uh, one 16-year-old Smedley Butler, a friend of the show. As a prerequisite for the withdrawal of American forces, the newly created Republic of Cuba was forced to sign onto a series of conditions that stripped Cuba of its sovereignty. These conditions laid out in the Platt Amendment gave the U.S. effective control over Cuban foreign policy and the right to intervene in Cuban domestic affairs for the sake of, quote, guarding American property. So just to backtrack, like 20 years before this, American investors start buying up tons of land in America. And then, you know, there's a war of independence that goes on for like two years. And then America's like, okay, we're going to join... And they, like, link up with the rebels, and they uh, take a bunch of land, and, you know, Theodore Roosevelt does, does a bunch of valor stealing. And it's like, okay, after we win, the country's going to be yours. And then, you know, four-month Spanish-American War happens, and then it's like, the deal has been changed. <laughs> yeah. The long independence struggle had taken a toll on the sugar industry. The U.S. sought to revive this industry through the 1903 Treaty of Reciprocity, in which Cuban sugar received a 20% tariff reduction in the U.S., while American goods received up to 40% tariff reductions in Cuba. Now, by 1907, foreigners, mostly Americans, owned 60% of all rural property in Cuba, with the resident Spaniards owning another 15%. Um, as a point of clarification, by resident Spaniards, I basically mean Spanish-born, you know, businessmen who had moved to Cuba 
before Cuban independence. You know, they were not expelled. They were allowed to remain. Um, whether you view these people as Cubans or as colonizers, whatever, you, you know, it, it's complicated. But um, yeah. But this meant that just a quarter of the land was actually owned by like Cuban born Cubans. In areas of greater agricultural importance, the ratio was even more lopsided. In the area of Sancti Spiritus, for example, Americans owned 87% of the land. America's economic interest in Cuba was defended by the American military, which conducted multiple interventions during the first half of the 20th century to protect U.S. businesses. Pretty much every decade, they would send in the Marines as a result of some sort of internal unrest. If you want to learn more about U.S. foreign policy in a fun way, um, I would recommend the book uh, Gangsters of Capitalism. Don't mind the stupid title. Uh, it's, it's, it's written by a journalist, so it has a more pop flair, but there's a lot of good history behind it. Um, it's kind of a quasi-biography of Smedley Butler. And, uh, yeah, this is a part of history that's kind of yada yada, especially in American class. Uh, but holy shit, we were everywhere. Yeah. <laughs> the ultimate result of this system was to perpetuate a state of Cuban dependency. Cubans produced sugar for the United States and bought goods from the United States. But because, you know, those sugar plantations are owned by Americans, this means that the profit on both sides of the exchange mostly remains in the hands of American businesses. Yeah, this is basically one step up in complexity from mercantilism. Yeah. <laughs> it's a gentle extraction. You know, it looks like, oh, we're doing trade, but, you know, the name of the rules of the game have all been written by one side that's playing the game, in a sense. Yeah. Now, in the short term, the Cuban sugar economy would prove to be very lucrative for U.S. businesses. But as 1900s progressed, it was kind of called into question for being unreliable and outdated. This is mostly because sugar production in Asia really starts to increase. Um, you have a lot in like China and India. And therefore, the value of Cuba's sugarcane fields begins to drop. Um, this actually, as a result, means that Cubans are able to buy up some of these plantations um, just because they're not as valuable anymore. Buy them up from their American owners. Yes, yeah. But in spite of this, attempts to diversify Cuba's economy away from sugar was met with little success, in part due to that treaty of reciprocity that meant that Cuban businesses just couldn't compete with American ones. Sugar was unreliable, but it was still, like, the best bet. It was still the safest way to make money. Yeah, and, like, manufactured and finished goods can't compete with American products that have their tariffs massively reduced. That's, like, the whole point. Yeah. Now, World War I would actually prove to be a bit of a boom time for the Cuban economy, as the price of sugar was driven up again by the conflict. While the bulk of the earnings did not reach the hands of ordinary Cubans, a degree of this newfound wealth was reinvested into Cuban education, infrastructure, and economic diversification by Cuba's liberal presidents. Unfortunately for Cuba, a collapse in the price of sugar in the latter half of the 20s would undermine most of this progress. The economy would take another hit with the onset of the Great Depression, leading to significant unrest against Cuba's then-present Gerardo Machado. Finally, in 1933, Machado was forced to step down by the U.S. ambassador. 
Machado's successor would only hold power for a few weeks before he too was forced to resign as a result of a coup led by a group of low-ranking army officers, at the head of which was a sergeant by the name of Fulgencio Batista. Now, even though Batista would go on to become all right, whoa, whoa, all right, Jay, 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 no, 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 it's fine, it's fine, Jay, it's fine. I got this. I can totally do this part. So, Batista went into started training in his wrestling career around like 1999-2000, but he made his WWE debut in 2002, where he played a heel enforcer for Reverend Devon. He actually debuted in a tag team match with Devon against Farquaad and Randy Orton, which would, of course, become uh, kind of ironic as as to what would, of course, happen later, which we all know. But, uh, you know, he was immediately sized up, even when he was young and inexperienced for his massive size and physique and his ability to just dominate a ring physically really would go on to become one of the wrestlers that utterly defined the post-attitude era of American professional wrestling. Just an absolute powerhouse in many ways, but before we as broader American people would, you know, learn of his great talents as a proper traditional film actor. Obviously, he was an actor before that, you know, in the Guardians of the Galaxy movies or in the Knives Out Glass Onion film, even Blade Runner 2049, but very fun and promising start to his career, including, of course, you know, getting into Cuban politics. Yes. Yeah. This is where this is where (laughs) I, I, I torment Jay by telling him that I currently have two tabs open to my computer one is this doc, and the other is the Wikipedia page of Dave Batista. And I will be interrupting this podcast at every opportunity to insert Batista trivia. Yes. Now, even though Fulgencio Batista would go on to become one of Cuba's most infamous dictators, his rise to power was rather unusual and protracted. Following the coup, Batista consolidated his control over the army and played kingmaker in presidential politics before eventually being elected president himself in 1940. So he actually waits between 1933 and 1940 before actually becoming president. He sounds like a very level-headed guy. And and this is a dude, um, he he's too young to have served in the independence wars right yes correct so this guy grows up in peacetime and he's a military man but he's a peacetime military man in a i imagine incredibly small uh independent military yeah Uh, this is probably mostly for show also he's a sergeant before the before 1933 this is not a general or a colonel or something Uh, he'll become a colonel because dictators love the rank of colonel but yeah, he, he's not a high-ranking guy prior to 1933. I think he probably didn't just have... I don't think he had it in his mind that, like, oh, yeah, I can run the country now, and he doesn't. He sort of just kind of, like, you know, is pulling the strings sort of behind the scenes for a while. Yeah, he's not a violent coup thrower. He's, like, a Machiavellian, slow, building up his power, almost like in a Frank Underwood-esque patiently grinding his way to the top and sort of out maneuvering his rivals yeah 
Much like how Dave Batista would outmaneuver his rivals when he, of course, you know, came to prominence as a key member of Evolution, you know, 2003 through 2005-ish era, you know, Triple H, Ric Flair, Randy Orton, of course, Batista was the big enforcer, but... You know, eventually, I mean, just, you got Triple H, you, you, you've got the old pride of Ric Flair, you've got the, the, the mad lad of Randy Orton. That alliance is never going to hold up, and, it, and as it falls apart, Batista does find himself often on top and heavily competing with, uh, say, Triple H for titles and being a serious threat, dominating Randy Orton in many matches. So anyway... <laughs> He's president in 1940, and one of his first acts as president was to enact a new, relatively progressive constitution, one that established a minimum wage, an eight-hour workday, and restricted the amount of land that could be owned by foreign entities. As a result of these policies, Batista won the support of Cuba's growing left-wing political movements, namely the Democratic Socialist Party and the Cuban Communist Party. This is, in a strange way, not foreshadowing. Batista technically stepped down in 1944, abiding by the term limit established by his constitution, only to see his preferred successor be defeated in the subsequent presidential election. As the constitution prevented a former president from running for office again until eight years had elapsed, Batista largely withdrew from Cuban electoral politics, spending much of the late 1940s in the United States while remaining as the head of the Cuban army. In the early 50s, he reemerged as a political figure, running again for the presidency in 1952. Finding himself running a distant third in the polls, Batista decided to use his remaining base of power, the army, to launch another coup, finally becoming the military dictator of Cuba in March of 1952. You know, this is kind of like when... He would, of course, win World Heavyweight Champion for the first time in April 3rd of 2005 as the main event of WrestleMania 21. Isn't Dave Batista not even Cuban? I think he's Puerto Rican. Is he? Uh, I have a picture of him holding <laughs> a Puerto Rican flag. I don't know. Anyways, yeah. <laughs> His last name is spelled different, but when he played uh, the character in the ring, he dropped the U and spelled it just like the, the dictator. I'll take um, your word for it. Also, while I remember, because we're about to start getting into like doing stuff like war and whatnot in Cuba, uh, I like giving, especially our American listeners, some reference. Uh, Cuba is about the size of the state of Virginia, though it is, of course, very long. Um, it's obviously quite hot but it's not like the tropicaliest of tropical they have a dry season and while by much of the world's standards it's pretty flat there are some like mountainous regions uh on both sides and kind of in the middle mostly on the eastern tip i'm gesturing with my hands even though you can't see my hands pretty big place not super huge but does have an interesting geography. So the 1930s and 40s had seen some changes in the relationship between Cuba and the United States. 
The extreme measures of the Platt Amendment were discarded as a part of President Roosevelt's good neighbor policy, with the new Treaty of Relations being signed that treated Cuba on more equal terms. FDR and Truman were relatively willing to let Cuban politics play out without sending in the Marines at any immediate hint of unrest. This allowed for a greater degree of reform to take place in Cuba. And by the end of the 40s, Cubans were actually, on average, significantly better off than their counterparts throughout most of Latin America, with Cuba having a GDP per capita similar to that of Italy. Economic diversification was underway, with the share of domestically made consumer goods increasing year by year. Though Cuba does have a growing sort of industrial worker class at this point in time. That being said, that America was still the senior partner in this relationship was understood by all parties, and U.S. support was key to the legitimacy of any Cuban government. The U.S., in turn, was quite willing to support any government that did not threaten this dynamic, and was thus quick to recognize Batista as president of Cuba in 1952. That Batista pivoted hard into portraying himself as a strong anti-communist leader undoubtedly played a role in this. Mm. Because, like, FDR sort of does, like, the good neighbor thing, where it's like, hey, let's not, you know, routinely overthrow governments in Central and South America. Let's uh, routinely overthrow governments in fascist Europe. Yeah. And, like, he'll, he'll mostly stick to that, but the good neighbor policy starts to, like, very quickly be discarded once the Cold War really kicks into drive. Um, so... You know, Batista capitalizes on this by, by being like, oh, yeah, I forget the fact that I was supported by communists in the 40s. I, I hate the communists. You know, he, he breaks off relations with the Soviet Union, you know, all that sort of stuff. Just for reference, uh, 1954 would see the first major uh, American coup of a country for, like, Cold War reasons, that being Guatemala. Yeah often seen as the CIA's first success, though. Well, that's a whole nother story. <laughs> so while Batista's first presidency had been mostly constitutional in nature, his second one was a clear dictatorship. Elections were postponed and the constitution was suspended. Protesters and dissidents were abused and killed by Batista's soldiers and police. Now, Batista's popularity was already middling at best before a seizure of power. Remember, the reason why he did a coup is because he was probably going to lose the 1952 election. And it slipped even further as a result of his heavy-handed politics. Batista was also notoriously corrupt, with deep connections with both American businesses and the mafia. He was very good friends with Meyer Lansky, this is the point in time where, like, the, the Italian-American mob has deep connections in Cuba. Um, I didn't know that. Now, corruption was the norm in Cuban politics and had been for ages. As it is in most of the world for most of time. Yeah. <laughs> but the extreme levels it was reaching was really starting to take a toll on civil society. Anger against corruption was exacerbated by the high levels of economic inequality that remained present on the island. As the Cuban economy entered another downturn caused by a drop in sugar prices during the 50s, the stage was set for a new uprising. Can you give us just some examples of like what this corruption looked like and like how it would 
affect the everyday Cuban and the annoyance and burden on their lives. I mean, for the most part, you, you have kind of like the base level corruption, which is common in a lot of countries where if you want anything to get done with the government, you have to pay bribes. If you want a permit, if you're setting up a new business, if you're trying to buy land or whatever, you pay a bribe. Um, that's kind of normal levels of corruption. Beyond that, I think in Cuba in particular, um, I mentioned that the 1940 constitution had ostensibly created a lot of protections for workers. Those protections were widely being ignored by the by the government because the government was receiving bribes. Um, you know, the whole idea that foreign businesses can't own more than a certain amount of land was being widely ignored as well. And the um, Batista, like I mentioned, was deeply in bed with the mob. The you know, the mob had bought up a lot of property, you know, like hotels and resorts in Havana. Um, and as a result, the mob would also be involved in basically acting as enforcers for Batista. So a lot of this perpetuated the sugar industry by making it hard to diversify into other businesses. You know, you had some tourism and whatnot going on, but mostly sugar and a bit of tobacco. And it, you know, it just made Batista very unpopular. Because at least in the 40s, you, where you had corruption, Cuba was actually having a brief period of, like, actual genuine democracy. Like, presidents were being elected in and out of office during the 1940s. Now, when you had that corruption and there was nothing you could do about it, because if you tried doing something either criminals or the police or the soldiers would shoot you. Um, that ticked a lot of people off. This reminds me of how, you know, Batista and Triple H and their various uh, allies and cronies would manipulate matches, intimidate people out of uh, running for the championship and rig various things. Of course, as, you know, Batista would battle for various heavyweight championships, ECW World Championships several times over the course of, 2005-2008. So this is a good opportunity in a obscene change of subject to mention that I uh, actually have a um, family connection to this story, uh, somewhat tangentially. My father's father, my grandfather, uh, Jim, was... In the Navy, uh, right after World War II, he kind of got lucky age-wise, um, and he was trained in photography. He would later go on to become a photographer in L.A. in the 60s and 70s and probably have a lot of affairs of various models that I don't, like, for sure know what happened, but given other things he did, I reasonably can assume it happened. There, I, I don't want to tell... I mean, I could tell stories with my grandfather. Have I ever told you the Tijuana story, Jay? I don't think so. I'll Well, I won't tell the whole thing because it's funnier that way, but I'll put it like this. Two men get in two separate cars. Two women get in ca cars, one with each man. Three kids get in one car. Two kids get in another car. Both families drive from L.A. to Tijuana. Everybody gets out of the cars. They go into a church. Four hours later, they go out of the church. The women get into the same cars as they came in. The children got into the same cars as they came in. And the men get into the opposite cars that they came in. And they drive back. 
Yeah. So my dad is telling my mom the story of his fan of, of him casually witnessing a wife swap at the age of three. And my mom, who comes from a much more conservative background, is just like slack jawed in the restaurant, not knowing what questions to ask. And what's hilarious is that I always thought that this was Rose and John's idea because Rose and John would go on to be like a couple for 50 years, 40 years, and, and John would die with them married. Whereas Jim and Iva, they stayed together just long enough to like see the kids off for, to college and then they separated. So I always assumed that was kind of a loveless marriage. And then on her deathbed, my grandmother Rose, who to be clear, is probably an awful person by most moral accountings. Um, very bipolar, uh, very catty, very proud, says on her deathbed that she caught Jim and Iva in bed together, and that's what got the whole story rolling. But anyway, that was in 1963. So in 1952, my grandfather, uh, who will never listen to this, I should probably get breakfast with him either tomorrow or Wednesday. I need to write down to ask him that. Anyway, he was in the Navy at being trained as a photographer, and he was stationed in, Jay, can you guess? Guantanamo Bay. Guantanamo Bay, Cuba, which is where my aunt was born. A fun story from that. Uh, she was born in, I think, 53 or 54, and he was not allowed to be present in the hospital when, his, when Rose was in labor. And to quote his uh, commanding officer, son, you were there to lay the keel, but now they're going to get the ship into harbor all on their own. Navy. It's just a naval pun because they're, the, they're in the Navy and that they're in a port. I don't know. <laughs> yeah. Anyway, currently on screen in the YouTube video is a picture of a uh, card that we have in my family, which is a uh, Christmas card that says, Season's Greetings from Guantanamo Bay, Cuba. <laughs> Um, and I will tell the rest of the story of my, my grandfather's tendential involvement in this a little later. Uh, uh, so, so anyway, 52, Batista is a proper dictator. He's, he's bad. He's nasty. Um, there's a lot of corruption. There's a lot of violence, whatever. So resistance to Batista's regime would begin to coalesce almost as soon as the dictatorship began. From the start, a key figure in this resistance was a young lawyer and would-be politician by the name of Fidel Castro. Castro was born in 1926 in eastern Cuba, the child of well-off Cuban sugarcane grower and his mistress. Castro spent most of his childhood attending various Jesuit schools before ending up at the University of Havana, where he joined the popular student activist movement and became politically engaged. In the late 40s, Castro joined the Cuban Orthodox Party. Wait, does that have anything to do with Greek Orthodox Christianity? No. This is this is Cuba. This it, these this this is this is yeah. the most papist place on earth. This is Yeah, it's not related to Orthodox Christianity. It's just called the Orthodox Party. Uh, that's just <laughs> poor branding. The Orthodox Church has been around for like checks watch depending on how you count 800 to like 1100 years at this point. That's just disrespectful. 
Anyway, they're a generally left-leaning party that counted amongst its ranks various kinds of socialists, social democrats, populists, and nationalists. We love to see a popular front. While previously Castro's policies mostly just focused on combating corruption, he increasingly found himself drawn into the broader left-wing Latin American political movement, which Jay is going to talk about now. Yes, it can be kind of hard to you know, really understand exactly how involved in, like, any sort of combat or anything Castro was before the Cuban Revolution. But basically, like, during the late 40s, he kind of ends up being involved with what I suppose could be called um, left-wing filibustering. That was kind of a thing at this point. Um, There were a few attempts by left-wing um, Latin American movements at overthrowing the government of uh, Rafael Trujillo in the Dominican Republic. And Castro gets involved in these, but he doesn't really seem to actually do much actual fighting, and these attempts fail. Um, he'll also briefly be in Colombia, where he's as a part of a group that's being supported by the Argentine Argentine leader, Peron. Um he gets involved in like a raid on a police station where they steal a bunch of weapons. But again, it doesn't really seem like he was actually doing much fighting himself. But that combined with his experience in student activist politics, which had a bit of a rough streak in Cuba at this time. Um, the, the big student activist movements were kind of like gangs in a way and got involved in kind of like street fights and whatever with other political groups. You love to see it. Yeah, meant that like he he probably had like he had exposure to violence, even though he wasn't some sort of great guerrilla leader or anything. Um, at this point in time, and this kind of also ties into his politics. Again, this is kind of a hard thing to determine. It'll become a question that we will talk about a lot in our next episode, which is when did Castro become a communist? Was Castro a communist from the beginning, or not? Castro himself will be contradictory about this. He'll often say that in the 40s, he had no real ideology. Um, and early on, he really just talked about opposing corruption. But I do think he, he's definitely getting exposed to a lot of Marxist thought by the late 40s by being involved in these movements. Yeah, I mean, the guy's born in 1926. So in the 40s, he's a teenager or in his 20s. 20, and. Yeah. I don't have a coherent political ideology, but I'm really angry about the shit that's fucked up and I want to fight the government about it, and also I'm around a bunch of socialists, is a pretty common experience for people in their teens and 20s. Yeah. So in 1950, Castro received his law degree and started his own legal practice. He also entered politics, running as a candidate in the Orthodox Party in the 1952 elections, the one that was canceled by Batista's coup. The incensed Castro attempted to sue Batista for usurping the Constitution to no avail. When it became clear that Batista's regime could not be opposed by legal means, Castro settled on a more violent solution. He and his brother Raul, who had a similar upbringing as Fidel, but who had ended up in the Communist Party instead of the Orthodox, decided on recruiting men into an armed movement and launching an attack against the government. Their target would be the Maconda Barracks in Santiago. By the summer of 1953, Fidel and Raul had put together a force of around 135 men and were ready to launch their attack. 
The plan was for a force led by Fidel to enter the barracks disguised in surplus military uniforms, seize the weapons in its armory, and use the communication facilities to broadcast anti-Batista messages. Oh, you gotta love the we have to seize the airwaves era, era of revolutions. Just, like, this is the classic. You know, this is the golden age. This is the prime vintage, Jim. Yeah. <laughs> you know, what are we gonna do now? Seize Facebook? It was assumed that the common soldiers would rise up and join their cause. Ah, good friend of the show. We will be greeted as liberators. Meanwhile, another force led by Raul would attack the Palace of Justice while a third group seized a nearby military hospital. Do we know, like, where they got m most of their, their training or, like, their, their weapons? Are these, like, are these just guys? Um, are any of them, like... Ex-soldiers or... Um, some of them are soldiers. Some of them are, like Fidel, had a little bit of experience, you know, seeing some kinds of combat in other parts. Street of, fighting, guerrilla of, stuff. Yeah. Uh, yeah, the Living street fighting in Latin America. Most of them are just young Orthodox or Communist Party members who don't have any military experience and not really much training. Um, this is not, you know, a, a well-honed fighting force. And I assume they have a few cobbled together secondhand or less than optimal firearms, and their plan is to get guns from that yeah. barracks. Yeah, so that's why they want to seize the armory. So the attack on Makanda barracks began on July 26th of 1953. Four of Fidel's men were able to enter the barracks before being identified as outsiders. The soldiers opened fire, and Fidel's militia quickly fell apart. The forces attacking the Palace of Justice and the military hospital did little better. By the end of the day, nearly all the would-be rebels had been killed or captured. Fidel himself would manage to flee into the countryside, only to be captured a few days later. So yeah, by any standard, the attack on the Moncada barracks had been a complete and total fiasco. This is a real feather in the um, hat of uh, Batista. Yeah. <laughs> um, much like you know when Batista won the World Heavyweight Championship at Survivor Series in uh, 2006. High moment. But anyways... Rather than spark an uprising against Batista, the event had only served to get Fidel and Raul captured and put on trial. Fidel, however, would make good use of this trial, defending himself in court, remember he was a lawyer, and delivering a series of impassioned speeches. So, this is actually a pretty well-known part of his life. He'll give a famous speech called the History Will Absolve Me speech, because, um, it, this is kind of like a, a, a Luke, I am your father thing where everybody remembers the quote where he's supposed to have said, history will absolve me. He actually never said that. He said something more like history will tell all or whatever. But the, the general point is he makes these really impassioned speeches and these get recorded and actually like leaked to the press and printed in pamphlets and everything. And because Cuba is coming off of a period of relative democracy in the 40s, you know, Batista, while he's a dictator, does not control like 100% of everything. This is not North Korea. And a lot of the Cuban population is like, yeah, this guy's right. Like, his grievances are right. And 
the government's being too harsh and like these guys should not be punished um all that much he will also um cite the cuban independence figure jose marti a lot in this speech because marti is a big inspiration for castro and this is also kind of goes into the idea that like castro is not clearly a communist at this point as so much as he is kind of like a left-wing cuban nationalist now is this also when he gets some international acclaim and knowledge maybe sympathy from a degree yes folks? yeah definitely a degree of it not necessarily a ton though because i mean let's be honest most people don't pay much attention to cuba today it was not that different back then um even the, like the Soviet Union, for example, was not really actively like closely following what was going on in Cuba and did not really have Fidel on, on their radar that much at this point in time. So this speech gets published as a part of a manifesto for the movement, which also calls for agrarian reform, profit sharing, and reinstatement of the 1940 Constitution. Now this movement would become officially known as the 26th of July movement, or M twenty six seven, because you know twenty sixth of July is when they attacked the barracks. So Castro's speeches did not save him from prison. He was sentenced to fifteen years, while Rule and the other top leaders were given thirteen. Though actually, a lot of like the lesser participants got very light sentences, um, probably as a, res- a result of you know the public support wait, for them. Wait, 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 wait. There, there are people who did January 6th who got more time than this. Yeah. <laughs> if you're wondering how much of a prison state America is. <laughs> that being said, uh, fuck those guys. Castro's failure did not mean an end to the anti-Batista movement. The subsequent years would see increased protests, unrest, and other armed plots against the government, much how... Batista's later WWE career would be marred by various injuries and being overshadowed by John Cena, who we would all eventually learn is a much worse actor. Though I did enjoy him in Peacemaker. Many of the individuals behind these actions viewed Fidel and the M267 movement as heroes. Still, the Batista regime was proving capable of dealing with the unrest. In an attempt to pacify the country, Batista decided to show clemency to his opponents, releasing a wide range of political prisoners, including Fidel and Raul, in 1955. The Castro brothers quickly used their newfound freedom to leave Cuba for the relative safety of Mexico. Fidel would use his time in Mexico to rebuild the M267 movement, recruiting it training other anti-Batista exiles and preparing for a new campaign against the government. It is also here where he would meet an Argentine Marxist revolutionary and guy on shirts by the name of Che Guevara. And as to your earlier question about training and everything, Che Guevara has revolutionary experience by this point in time. Not a ton, but he does have some. He'll be involved in a lot of this training. Um... They'll also have, I'm forgetting his name, but like there's there's a Spanish Republican fighter from the Spanish Civil War who's a part of this and will help train them. Hell yeah. So like now they're starting to get actual like military training. Now Castro would return to Cuba in November of 1956, landing on the southern coast of the country with a group of around 80 men, including Shea and Raul. 
This force was almost immediately set upon by the army, with the majority of it being wiped out. Fidel and his closest associates, however, managed to escape into the Sierra Maestro Mountains, where they would continue their fight against Batista. I mentioned mountains before. It was good. It was set up. Now, on January the 17th of 1957, Castro's men would win their first military victory. The scale of this victory was basically as small as possible. The M267 militia overran a garrison of around 15 soldiers in total, killing two and forcing the rest to flee. But this was the start of a guerrilla war in the Sierra Maestra. And remember, folks... Cuba's got more industry now, but it's probably still a very agrarian country, so, like, the mountain roads and infrastructure are not going to be great, and tracking down these gorillas is not going to be super, super fun for those in charge. Following the debacle of Castro's landing, rumors, widely encouraged by Batista, had been spread that Castro himself had been killed by the army. Fidel, who was actually factually alive, sought to dispel these rumors in a dramatic way. His supporters combed Havana in an attempt to find a foreign journalist who would be willing to come to the Sierra Maestra. In February, they found their man, Herbert Matthews of the New York Times. Matthews agreed to travel to the Sierra Maestra, where he subsequently interviewed Fidel Castro in person. The idea that Castro had been killed was debunked on February 24th of 1957 when a picture of him appeared on the front page of the New York Times, alongside an article titled, Cuban Rebel is Visited in Hideout, Castro Still Alive and Fighting in the Mountains. So Matthews would continue to cover Castro's fights, writing multiple articles that cast him as a brave rebel fighting against the corrupt dictator Batista. Coverage such as this caused public opinion in the U.S. and around the world to begin to swing in favor of the rebels. The U.S. government, however, continued to support Batista, selling him arms all the way until 1958 when the embargo aimed at preventing American arms from reaching either side of the conflict was put in place. Yes, we're stopping either side from getting weapons. So yeah. that why neither the side that we never gave weapons and the side that we gave tons of weapons to in the past, they can't get any more weapons, <laughs> and then it'll be fair. Yes. Now, for much of 1957, the fighting remained relatively small in scale. We're talking like skirmishes with, you know, dozens of maybe hundreds of soldiers you know, tacking little outposts, doing ambushes and whatever. Um, this is not World War II or, or something. This is kind of very low-scale guerrilla combat. Castro's forces never numbered more than a few hundred men, including such disparate characters as the aforementioned Che Guevara, as well as the CIA gunrunner and future Watergate burglar Frank Sturgis. Oh, Lord. Um, <laughs> yeah. This will also tie into, like, a brief window of maybe, like, a few months where the CIA temporarily backed Castro and was supporting um, M267 with, you know, getting weapons and everything. Fidel Castro is, like, the guy that deranged leftists who don't know their history think Osama bin Laden is, actually is. Yeah. Like, he's the actual, got some, maybe got some CIA support and then did a bunch of stuff. Um, yeah. So, 
my grandfather claims so this here here's a claim that's like probably true he his job was um he flew in a um pby uh, catalina plane and his job was to take pictures and he claimed that he basically he and his team basically mapped the entire island um he would wait. He also claims this is the part that I don't know that those maps got there into the hands of Castro and were used by rebels to help overthrow the government. Whether or not you choose to believe him uh, is kind of your your own discretion. But the question remains: like, I thought this, the the U.S. is is officially and unofficially supporting Batista. Why is like a CIA guy there and whatnot? He. I mean, this, this is the point in history where the CIA is, like, under the least amount of scrutiny. Yes. And Sturgis is not, like, a direct CIA employee as so much as he has friends in the CIA. He's basically a gun runner. Um, he had contact with shell companies that had connections with the CIA, and the shell companies were basically being used to funnel arms to various movements in, in Latin America. And... This is how it, you know, some of this ends up being directed towards Castro. So it's like very much under the table um, sort of operation. Uh, this is not, you know, the president being like, I'm going to give a thousand rifles to Fidel Castro or something. But it was most likely done with the intent of some of these guys in the CIA are definitely thinking, oh, well, Castro might win. And if he does so, like, we want influence with him. And again, this is a time where the CIA has basically no federal oversight. Yeah. <laughs> now, around this time, you also have other rebellions breaking out against the government in other parts of the country. Um, you have the central Escambre Highlands, where we'll have their own, like, little uprising. And you also have a lot of popular resistance in the cities. Um, this will kind of get downplayed in... Uh, a lot of the popular memory of this revolution, like everybody, everybody just remembers Castro in the mountains with like peasant gorillas, but like they're all wearing Che Guevara t-shirts. Who is yeah. like, I'll only join the team if you put me on t-shirts. Yeah, but you have a lot of like active resistance in the cities by by workers and civilians and whatnot. That being said, Batista is now going to primarily focus on the Sierra Maestre because he views Castro as basically the source of all of his problems. Um, so this means that in January of 1958, Batista will finally respond in force by launching the bulk of the Cuban army, which is around 12,000 men, against Castro's forces in a plan known as Operation Verano. Now, the Cuban army outnumbered Castro's men, Castro had maybe like 600, 700 or so. But about half of the Cuban army is raw recruits who will prove to basically just avoid any form of combat as much as possible. And the remaining half was not much better in terms of discipline and morale. And you gotta remember, they're sending these guys into the mountains. I imagine a lot of squads and platoons are just gonna fuck off for a while. Yeah. <laughs> and just say they did something. You see in a lot of, like, these corruption-run states um, that numbers for the army are often, like, nominal at best because you have, like, fictional soldiers on the payroll and even the ones who are there, like, don't care. 
I'm like, their shoes got sold (laughs) to fund like some guy buying a Miami hotel. That being said, after a series of skirmishes, the army was actually able to kind of outmaneuver and surround Castro's men in what's called the Battle of Las Mercedes. Castro managed to avoid defeat by opening negotiations with the army commander, General Cantillo. Now, because of how fierce the resistance had been, the army thought that Castro had like thousands of soldiers. So Cantillo was like, okay, yeah, let's talk and negotiate a settlement. Um, In reality, Castro had far fewer men than the army realized, and he used this period, um, this lapse in the fighting, to basically just slip away from the encirclement. Operation Verano had, kicking and screaming, actually nearly succeeded in wiping out the M267 movement. But this singular mistake resulted in the near collapse in the reputation and morale of Batista's army. They had him in checkmate and just didn't do it. The rebels would soon go on the offensive, leaving the Sierra Ministry to launch a series of attacks against Cuban towns and cities, quickly making their way across the island. By December, rebel forces under Che Guevara reached the city of Santa Clara in central Cuba, capturing it with minimal losses. Most army garrisons simply surrendered at the first sight of rebel forces, and I imagine some of these guys actually were greeted as liberators. Yeah. Clearly seeing that his rule had come to an end, Batista fled to Cuba in New Year's Day 1959, much like how Dave, how Batista fled WWE mostly into at the end of 2010 after all those injuries and getting fucked over. The army commander of Havana se- subsequently surrendered the city to rebels without a fight. In a matter of weeks, the army of the largest country in the Caribbean had collapsed in the face of a force that until the end days of the revolution likely never numbered more than 600 men. So yeah, this meant that in January of 1959, the rebels control Havana. They basically control the entire country because any Batista loyalists pretty much surrender when Batista flees Cuba. Uh, For reference, Batista will end up in Portugal, where he receives, you know, safety from the Portuguese dictator Salazar. Um, Now, Castro, kind of like Batista, doesn't immediately seize power directly for himself. He'll actually support another guy, uh, Manuel Uritia Leo, in becoming president. Leo was a kind of left-leaning liberal who had defended Castro publicly, um, you know, in in the fallout of the the barracks attacks, and was seen as kind of like a palatable figure for a a wide spectrum of Cuban politics. And he'll actually become president with Castro's support on January 3rd of 1959. Leo's government will be recognized by the United States very quickly, and... He'll have a prime minister, uh, Jose Cardona, who's also kind of like a general liberal, not really very radical. Now, Castro will arrest a lot of like the hardline Batista supporters in the army. And because of this, you know, the M267 movement kind of ends up just becoming the army. Like they sort of usurp the, the leadership of the army, but they leave at least in the short-term, politics to these sort of left-leaning liberal guys um, rather than directly 
taking control of Cuba. Like this is important to keep in mind for later on because you know it's important to just remember that this is not an outwardly communist guerrilla taking control of the country and establishing the People's Democratic Republic of Cuba or something overnight. This is something which on paper would have seemed not nearly as radical. You know, you're getting a return of the sort of liberal ruling class, maybe a little bit more left-leaning, that had been contesting for power at least before 1952. Yes, this is a weirdly apolitical revolution that's in quotes, but like, like, in, in almost like the American framework of a revolution, it doesn't at first seem like a class revolution or religious revolution or a huge like sea change in how society is going to operate. It's just new people are in charge and maybe there are some more rights. Yeah. So, Jay, what, what do you think went wrong? This is the No One Is Competent podcast. Well, how was Batista incompetent? I think he generally overestimated his own popularity, even within the army, and just kind of overestimating the fighting capability of the army. Whereas the army, you know, this conflict reminds me in a lot of ways of, of recent Middle Eastern conflicts where I'm thinking in particular about the early on when ISIS was taking over a lot of Syria and Iraq. And a lot of people around the world were like wondering, how can this happen? How can they suddenly have, you know, a vast nation state? Because when we're used to thinking of war and sort of the World War II mindset where you have these massive armies combating over front lines and it, you know, 10,000 lines are expanded to advance 20 kilometers, it doesn't make sense to have these battles where you have a small little battle and one side just flees and the other side just drives down the road to the next city and then takes the next city and so on and so forth. And that's kind of what happens in, in Cuba here, where you have the fighting in the Sierra Maestre, where Castro and the rebels manage to hang on. They manage to avoid um, being captured and being defeated. And then when they go on an offensive the army morale just collapses and the army just dissolves. And, you know, the rebels pretty much just go from like, okay, we just take the city and then we just drive over to the next city and we take it with minimal fighting and so on and so forth. So I think that's kind of what goes wrong with Batista. He, he doesn't really have an actual strong military or state apparatus behind him. It's more or less just a bunch of guys who are loyal to him as long as he's you know, they see him as, like, the top boss, the guy who, you know, they have to be loyal to. And once they see the wind blowing the other way, they dump him very quickly. The other thing that goes wrong, of course, is that he doesn't kill Castro when Castro's in prison. Yeah, that that's, uh, that's if, pretty... If you want to be pretty, a dictator, pretty... I guess, kill your political prisoners. <laughs> I mean, this, I think, also goes into a bit of why the Batista regime is weak. And, and you know, I don't want to downplay um, the very bad things that Batista did because his government will commit massacres against political dissidents. They will kill probably thousands yeah. of people. 
they they do they you know he's a very bad person but taken in the broad context we can see that he never had like a, the, the, he's not the Saddam Hussein or a, a Kim Jong Un or somebody this is a guy who comes into power after a period of relative democracy in the 40s and Cuba has a sort of nascent civil society and he doesn't immediately control all of it and he sort of has to be careful not to go too far and he obviously fails at doing this but this is why he'll do things like give relatively lenient sentences to the barracks attack perpetrators and eventually release them from prison whereas you know if this was Saddam he would have just killed them all He's not a hard enough guy who did not come from yeah. a hard enough background. This is a, a soldier who never fought a war. Yeah, it's like, if you want to be a dictator, you kind of have to be a bit brutal. And you gotta be a dick. Yeah, like, Batista is, is brutal, but kind of, in, in a way, it's like, brutal enough that he pisses a lot of off a lot of people, but not brutal enough to actually hold on to power. Yeah, so uh, in short, uh, do more criminal justice crimes. Uh, don't uh, trust that your raw recruits with uh, misappropriate uniforms are going to go into the jungle and kill guys and, you know, actually give the people some reason to like you. If you're thinking that this has been a lame episode, one, you're wrong. I injected a shit ton of obnoxious jokes into this thing, and I'm sure Jay's very annoyed by it. He's had enough to hear. And you're like, oh, this is this is still like this isn't the most exciting story. There's like 600 dudes in Castro's whole movement. Like, the a lot of the, con the conflict was relatively bloodless from a militaristic standpoint. Uh, What's the drama? Well, that is because we are setting up uh, big episode 50 of the No One Is Competent podcast. Um, we'll tell you then uh, then why it that what we selected this topic for our 50th show but we have a very big special episode planned one that we wanted to spend a lot of time doing and we one we wanted to have a lot of context for so we did all the context for in order to unleash upon you jay hit it the bay of pigs the bay of pigs all right once again i have been azalea at azalea wyatt on Twitter that has been Jay at Jaharis48. You can email the podcast and no one is competent at gmail.com. We greatly appreciate you showing the podcast there are people sharing on social media, leaving us reviews and subscriptions on the YouTubes, the 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 Apples, the whatever, the spot I, I do interact with the thing. It really helps out the show and motivates us to make more of it. And wherever you are, I hope y'all be good and that we see you in the next one.